The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Thus Always to Tyrants edition. It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2017. On today's show, Mommy Dead and Dearest is an HBO true crime documentary. It details the gruesomely fascinating case of Gypsy Blanchard, the victim of an epic act of abuse at the hands of a deranged mother. That mother she eventually conspires to kill. The documentary is an exploration of Munchausen by proxy syndrome. We discuss with journalist Michelle Dean. And then we discuss the controversy surrounding the public theater staging of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This production draws analogies to current events by making Caesar into a Trump figure, leading prominent corporations to withdraw their sponsorship of the production. And finally, Barry Lamb is a Vassar philosophy professor. He uses storytelling techniques familiar to public radio listeners everywhere to eliminate philosophical ideas. We discuss his podcast, Hi-Fi Nation. That's Fi with P-H-I. Very clever. Joining me today is Isaac Butler. Isaac, welcome to the show, man. You're filling some big shoes today. I know. I know. Thank you for having me. Uh, I should say uh, Isaac is a frequent contributor and beloved contributor to Slate and a theater director. Uh, and you're working on a book with Dan Coyce. That's right. That's right. Dan and I are Probably I probably have 50 emails from Dan awaiting me when we're done uh, taping this. Yeah, Dan and I are working on The World Only Spins Forward, which is uh, based on a uh, major expansion of the uh, oral history of angels in America that we wrote for the good people at Slate.com. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show. And of course, we're joined by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Are we still in a like blurry, slurry, dreamy haze from our incredible experience in Australia? Oh yeah, I think my brain is still somewhere over Singapore. I'm 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 way behind. <laughs> Have you had the experience since getting back, Stephen, that the light is too bright for your eyes? I feel like I've become some undead creature who has to wear sunglasses even on cloudy days now. Ah, the hideous jagged extrusion of American light. <laughs> it wounds my eyes. Um. I, well, what's funny is that in uh, so I went on from um uh, not to go on and on about Australia, but I went from Melbourne where we parted ways to Tasmania, where the light is just so white and fragile. Um, uh, set against this incredibly rugged landscape, it was very beautiful. So yes, I I have noticed that uh, I've noticed the cheap chintzy, blitzy American light, <laughs> crappy Seven <laughs> Eleven light of our nation, <laughs> shit light. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, moving on. Mommy Dead and Dearest tells the gripping, if often sickening, tale of young Gypsy Blanchard, a little girl suffering from a bewildering array of medical issues, from, if you believe her mother, muscular dystrophy to cancer to mental retardation. But it turns out you shouldn't have believed her mother. She was using her daughter to commit fraud and gain attention and sympathy. The HBO documentary tells the story of Gypsy and her eventual hand in the brutal murder of her mother. Let's listen to a clip. It's like when you're abused, but you've lived that way your whole life. You don't really know that you're being abused. You don't know any different. Looking at the open ocean now. And it's beautiful. I knew that I was different or my life was different from other kids. But people thought of us as, you know, the sweetest mother-daughter family ever best two people in the world. What illnesses did your mom say that you had? Um, asthma, epilepsy, um, hearing impaired, vision impaired, um, fed with a feeding tube, paralyzed from the waist down, 
slow, so uh, retardation, and among other things, I just can't remember them. <laughs> to discuss the documentary, we're uh, joined by Michelle Dean. She was the author of the definitive piece on the um, Gypsy Blanchard story and BuzzFeed. She's also the recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Citation for Excellence in Reviewing. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so at the center of this documentary is uh, a syndrome, Munchausen by proxy. Why don't you explain a little uh, what that is and then describe to us how you uh, how you found out about this story, got onto it. Munchausen by proxy is basically a syndrome where someone fakes uh, illness um, on behalf of another. That's the by proxy part. And usually they're they're not so typically they're not doing it because there's some material benefit um, in Munchausen by proxy. They're not faking it because they want money or donations or what have you. They're doing it um, because generally because they want the attention associated with it. Um, you know, I periodically scan the news for crime stories to report, and there was there was a wire report about about this one when Gypsy and her her boyfriend um were arrested and um and at the time i should say it wasn't very clear exactly what had gone on it was clear that the that dd the mother was dead um and that gypsy and her boyfriend had had some involvement in that murder but um it hadn't really come out that there was this entire backstory to going going on all that the the story the wire story said was you know there's this girl and she's been faking being in a wheelchair for years and it turns out that none of it is true and she killed her mother and there was this picture above it this, this um mugshot of gypsy and her boyfriend and actually in these orange jumpsuits and they they looked they looked like the same person. Um, they were terrified in the picture and it was the picture that, um, got me to start looking into it. And this was maybe just a couple of days after TD's body was found in June of 2015. I, I mean, you spent about a year, if I understand it correctly, reporting the story. What, at what point did you realize just how many layers of the onion there were and describe what those layers, what those layers are? I feel like I'm still finding other. <laughs> layers of the onion um you know it, 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 it very quickly it became clear that gypsy was at least saying that this had been going on her whole life that she you know that since she was a, a little kid her mom had told her she was sick so the minch has an element had surfaced very quickly but it wasn't really clear how much of that was true it sounded fantastical to some people who were even people who knew a lot about the case, it sounded fantastical to people who had known Gypsy and Dee Dee in Springfield where they lived. One thing that, that you mentioned there was that, you know, Gypsy at least was claiming, you know, that this had been going on for a long time. And one of the interesting parts of this story is that whether as a result of the kind of um, incredibly controlled cloistered upbringing she had in which her reality was entirely mediated by her mother or for other reasons, you know, at the center of the story is someone whose um, own perspective and claims about her experience are not necessarily reliable. Right. And she is also the only witness to a lot of the stuff that 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 went on. Um, how as a how as a journalist did you did you attack that challenger or, or, you know, that that central mystery? Well, she is and she isn't. You know, I think it, it's complicated. It's true that Gypsy doesn't really um, totally know exactly everything that's go that that went on while she was while while this is 
you know, developing over the years. Um, and actually the major corroborating source and the thing which proves that her, her story is, is true, um, is the medical records, um, or at least the portion of her medical records that, um, that eventually her attorney was able to, um, to obtain. So in fact, like there is, you know, she was, the, she was the only witness to a lot of it. Um, and you could say she's unreliable. I'm not sure I would say that exactly. Um, I think, you know, she was often confused. I remember one of the, the diseases that her mother claimed that she has, um, and, you know, it's, you didn't list earlier as muscular dystrophy. And I remember discussing this with her at one point and she just finally said, you know, I don't think I really understood what muscular dystrophy was and what, um, you know, what its effects were supposed to be on me. And I think this, this, um, sort of state of confusion that she was sort of like maintained in by her mother, where she mostly relied on her mother to not lie to her, um, which, most children do. Um, and, and, and so, and, and Gypsy, unfortunately, you know, just, it, it, it didn't turn out that her, that her mother was reliable in that sense. So it's, it's sort of more Dee, Dee who's unreliable than Gypsy. Mm-hmm. Gypsy doesn't know all the information. Um, and sometimes it, when it, even I'm, I'm pretty sure this happened to the documentary, Tarion too, but like, sometimes talking to her, you felt like you were informing her about her own situation because she, she lived it, but she was, she just didn't have the whole picture and was never given the whole picture. Well, I think that's kind of the mystery at the heart of your story for for sure. And that comes out in the documentary as well is that their personhoods seem to have been so fused over the course of their life together that it's it's sort of impossible to get to the epistemological bottle, bottom, the epistemological bottom of what happened. I mean, who knew what first about whom and what this kept occurring to me, both reading your reporting and, and watching the documentary. And we'll never really know the answer is what was the truth between the two of them when they were alone together? I mean, it's it's suggested in the documentary, I think, that it was an open secret between them that Gypsy could, in fact, walk. Right. So you presume that when they're behind closed doors, she would just get up out of her wheelchair and move around. But I don't know to what extent maybe she was almost psychologically crippled by her mother having forced that reality on her for so many years. Well, you know, in fact, it, she didn't really get up and walk around behind closed doors, according to to Gypsy. Anyway, um, she this is part of the confusion is that her mom told her she would get weaker if she walked more. Um, and, 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 and so, and so she, she, she mostly tried to, to stay, um, in the chair and, and much as, you know, it's true that there's like not a lot of corroboration, uh, about like exactly what would go on once, I don't know, the lights would go off in the house at night. Um, my sense is that is, is that, yeah, like, you know, Dee Dee was so made gypsy into an extension of herself, um. And, and, and this was sort of the tragedy of all of it in that even, even now, I think it's, it's very hard for Gypsy sometimes to, to talk about the ways in which her mother might have forced her to stay in the wheelchair, might have physically, you know, um, restricted her in certain ways because on some level that betrays her mother. And I think that's, it's, 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 it might sound ironic or difficult for someone who hasn't spent a lot of time with this case to understand, but in some ways, Gypsy is still kind of desperate not to betray her mother, um, in the telling of her story. Yeah. That comes, that comes out in the interview with her in the documentary as well, but there's a part of her that's still protecting. 
I mean, so Didi casts a huge shadow over the story in every way, of course, right? This absent person, she's been killed and she's gone, can't speak for herself. But she, you know, every, you know, all all testimonial is that she was a psychopath, essentially, and uh, a ripoff artist, but also just, you know, like kind of r- radically missing a normal human core. And that is expressed in the manipulation of her child to you know, all kinds of nefarious ends or whatever. But it raises the other question, which is what well, what kind of human core does this person who is damaged by her, you know, what kind of human core does Gypsy have? And I I don't know, do I read this right, Michelle? I saw cause for optimism, not only in her demeanor in the interviews. Um, and as you watch them, you're constantly acting, well, is this per- asking yourself, is this person, you know, a highly manipulative sociopath as well? But her fa- the relationship that seems to be developing with her biological father by the end of the documentary and she really breaks down when she's with him at the end it does seem as though bizarrely right the, the, to me the most shocking thing about this quite shocking documentary wasn't really d- the true crime element it was the fact that after all of this this young woman seems to have an like an inner normal human core of like decency and empathy am i uh, am i a sucker <laughs> I don't, I don't think you're a sucker if you are a sucker. So am I, um, and probably a lot more so than you are. Gypsy's trying really hard. One of the things that happened uh, that's in the article, you know, when I first called her, um, and, and was first talking to her, one of the things she said to me was like, my mom taught me to do all these bad things and I, I don't want to do them. I, I want to be a good person. Um, and I sense that that was an honest aim, right? You know, or I still do. Um, I think she's trying to be a good person. I think it's hard because for her, her instinct is always going to be obfuscation. And her instinct is also always going to be to put on this, to put on a show for people, which is different, I think, than maybe what you're saying, where you think that at the heart of it, she might be there, or there's a possibility anyway, that at the heart of it, she's a sociopath. I think I look at it differently in that I just think she's so worried that people are not going to accept her now that she sometimes, yeah, still puts on a bit of a, a, like, you know, of a performance for people because she wants them to like her so badly. Well, one of the one of the chilling things that she says in the interview near the end of the documentary is that, well, the interviewer asks her, Aaron Lee Carr, the director asks her, are you are you happier? Are you better off now in prison than you were all those years with your mother? And she pretty unhesitatingly and without surprisingly, without a lot of rancor, says, yes, she is happier in prison. She is. I sometimes worry that 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 line lets us all lets the people who are observing this um, people, this whole situation off the hook. Right. Like um, to think like, oh, well, you know. Well, she's better off in in prison than she was with her mom as though as though that's like an acceptable baseline for her existence because one of the things that that has come to to bother me over the course of 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 you know um of watching the reaction to the article and to the documentary is just people who 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 think think that's a basis to be like well, you know, I guess like prison will socialize her and that's okay. I I think like this was a this was a situation where the law did not fit the facts of the crime very well. Um, and even the 10 years that she's serving, it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. It's 10 more years of a restricted existence that she should never have had in the first place. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, the, and as we all know, you know, the American prison system is a really great fair place <laughs> where people are really well treated and, yeah. and socialized for life in the outside, in the outside world. Um, uh, no, but seriously, you know, one of the points you make in the documentary is that she was failed every step of the way by the systems that we've put in place. Right. To every institution, people. right. The and, medical. Yeah. And you certainly leave and, and you go into, I think, greater detail in that in your article in how Didi's con worked in the various layers that had failed to, to, to protect Gypsy. And you're left, at least I was left both at the end of your article and at the end of the documentary feeling like, and here is another giant system we've put in place to try to deal with issues like this that is completely failing this person and is wholly inadequate to the job of trying to deal with uh with a case like this the idea that 10 years in a i don't know what level of security prison she's in but that 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 is going to solve this problem in some way i'm putting that in heavy quotes uh seems totally bizarre to me so i'm i i I, i'm glad you feel the same way (laughs) and it's true like institutions failed her and and to some extent like you know, I hope the attention on on the case from the documentary and it, you know, and from everything else, like helps people um, to feel like that, that that there was a certain there should be a certain level of adjustment in her case. Um, you know, her her father has like set up a petition to try and get some kind of relief from from the Missouri governor, but it, it sometimes feels like people. Um, this is this isn't yet another instance where everyone is interested in Gypsy as this as this you know um, uh, human interest story, um, and everybody loves a documentary. But when it comes down to like doing something that actually concretely improves the trajectory of the rest of her life, um, that's more difficult for people. Um, so it's sort of it's been interesting anyway to watch the the attention sort of come to a boil but anyway well mommy dead and dearest is on hbo check it out it's uh, quite gripping uh, but absolutely also read the terrifically reported buzzfeed piece by michelle dean michelle thank you so much for coming uh, on the show it was a total pleasure thank you for having me all right well before we move on to julius caesar why don't we uh, why don't we give him the business all right isaac what do you what do you got well, first, we want to tell you about one of Slate's newest shows, Hit Parade. Slate's pop expert Chris Malamphy digs into the stories behind some of the hit singles of the past. Uh, so far, he's covered the week the Beatles conquered every slot in the Billboard Top 5 and the long, strange story of how an obscure Neil Diamond song became UB40's hit Red Red Wine which I should say as a child, I loved listening to on Casey Kasem uh, every Sunday. The show airs monthly on the last Friday of every month in this very feed. So listen to Hit Parade later this month and check out the back catalog in the Culture Gabfest feed. Isaac, I would just jump in to say that regular listeners will know that Chris Malanfi is one of our most beloved regular guests. And whenever we're trying to understand pop music, why is this a hit? Why is this not a hit? What is this strange and comprehensible new trend? Chris Malanfi comes in and, and lays it all out for us. So Hit Parade is meant for our listeners. I believe the Venn diagram is some serious overlap. Uh, and in Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about uh, Carboys, which is a hit YouTube series that's nigh undescribable. So uh, what would you say Carboys is, Dana? Uh, I mean, well, you have to listen to Slate Plus to get into that. But Carboys, according to our producer, Benjamin Frisch, is the future of television. Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's certainly something like I've never witnessed before. Just a reminder that Slate Plus members get bonus segments like that one from all your favorite Slate shows, plus ad-free podcasts. It also happens that now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus. 
You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app. And you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. It's a brand new app and by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Okay, onward. Julius Caesar is at the center of the Shakespeare performance canon and making the play contemporary by echoing current events is uh, totally standard practice. However, the depiction of the title character as a Trump figure has led to two prominent corporate sponsors pulling out. Uh, Isaac, I can't think of anybody in the world uh, that we'd rather have on the show. Uh, this is just pure kismet um, to discuss this topic. You're a theater director. You're a writer and a critic, and uh, you've written uh, beautifully about Shakespeare for Slate in the past, you were able to produce quite quickly uh, an essay saying that it's outrageous to suggest that any production of Julius Caesar could glamorize assassination. Why is that outrageous? Well, it's outrageous because the assassination of Julius Caesar is essentially the kind of uh, one-way door that this tragedy uh, uh, walks through. What happens in Julius Caesar is, you know, obviously Caesar is assassinated, but that actually comes at the halfway point of the play. And that's really important because the reason why the various uh, conspirators, of which, of course, Brutus of the famous line et tu Brute is the most well known. The reason why uh, the the conspirators kill Caesar is to prevent him from becoming a king, because if he becomes a king, the Roman Republic will be destroyed. But it is actually their murder of Caesar and their normalizing, to use a word that's in the, the common parlance a lot, their normalizing of political violence that causes the Republic to fall. So the very thing they're seeking to prevent, they actually cause. And so in many ways, I don't think Shakespeare plays uh, have messages. Uh, I don't you know, I mean, he's all about oppositions. He's all about dialectics. But to the extent that it does, it's very hard to read this play as a play in which um, political violence is a really great move that the play is endorsing. So you're saying that the play is essentially a gloss on should you punch a Nazi? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess you could read it that way. And I think, I mean, I haven't talked to Oscar Eustace, the, the director about it, but, um, you know, from things that I've read that, that, that he said and what I know of him as a person, you know, I, I, I would be very, very doubtful if the reason why he's staging this show is to encourage people to punch Nazis and, uh, kill the president. The, um, and in fact, I actually think, you know, one of the things that the show is getting dinged for is that the assassination of Caesar is extra savage and uh, extra dramatic and incredibly violent and, and visceral and bloody. And I think part of the reason why he's doing that is to, and why the production is doing that is to show the audience, you know, this is what political violence is. There is no neat, tidy way to uh murder your way to power there is no neat tidy way to use violence to get what you want in the political system uh and starting with caesar's murder and then escalating over the course of the show there's there's more and more kind of out of control violent outbursts that that kill all of the you know most of the play's protagonists Mm -hmm. But Dana, before I see to you very quickly, um, Isaac, we should point to one other mitigating fact here. Important fact is that during the Obama presidency, as you point out in your piece, the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis uh, produced a Julius Caesar that quite clearly had an intentional resemblance, you know, the Caesar character bore, as you say, an intentional resemblance to Obama. So the idea that like, you know, that this is somehow a partisan issue and that liberals would have been in a frenzy had Obama been depicted as Caesar and then assassinated mid-play, that's just 
that's just easy to falsify on the facts alone, correct? That Yes, absolutely. And I should say, I don't think there's anything particularly outrageous about having an, an Obama Caesar, right? Like the point is not that, that that was bad and this is bad. The point is, is that both are, are fine. And there is a longstanding historical tradition of performing Shakespeare plays that involve politicians or kings and queens in ways that are resonant with current events and our current politicians. It happens all the time. Probably, I would guess there's a production of I don't know, uh, Henry the fourth being planned right now where King Henry is a lot like Trump or something. I'm just saying that, that, that it happens all the time. It happens all over the country and it happens in other countries too. And it seems almost inevitable as well, especially if you have a contemporary dress Shakespeare. Why would you not interpret, you know, a history in terms of political events that are happening concurrently? Yeah, it's completely irresistible. And, you know, there are references to current political events of Shakespeare's time in Shakespeare plays that are not set you know, during the time that those events took place. Um, a really perfect example of that is, you know, a lot of King Lear is about this anxiety of dividing England into three parts. And of course you have England, Scotland, and Wales, right? So, uh, um, and that takes place hundreds of years before Shakespeare's life. So I, I I'm just saying that it's, it, it dates back to Shakespeare's own writing. Well, there was actually a passage I wanted you to read from Julius Caesar that you have here by your side about exactly this, about, one of the characters imagining the story being played out in centuries to come. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is um a, a really shocking moment that happens after Caesar dies, where Brutus thinks that a really smart idea is for them to smear their hands with Caesar's blood and hold them up to 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 accept the guilt for the crime that they have committed, and that this will be persuasive to the to the crowd. And uh, as they're doing it. Uh, Cassius, who's one of the ringleaders of the, uh, or Cassius, I should probably say, who's one of the ringleaders of the assassins, says the following. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? So it's a thing the characters are thinking about in the play itself. And Shakespeare loved metatheatrical jokes and references. Hamlet is notoriously full of them. Um, uh, it's a thing the characters themselves are thinking about, which is we are historically great people. H- how is history going to portray us? They have an eye on that as they're doing it. And how are theaters, which will necessarily dramatize this in the future, going to be dramatizing it? It's on their minds in the play itself. Right. History has its eyes on you, right? Yeah, We're yeah, still yeah. doing it now. Yeah, exactly. Here's a question for both of you guys. Would you say that it is a sign of some sort of dangerous normalization that this is happening with this play that, for example, Delta Airlines is withdrawing its funding when they they were behind this Minneapolis production that Steve was talking about, that there's this kind of corporate hypocrisy of, of pulling one's funding to symbolize outrage? Or is that something that could have happened under any Republican or Democratic president? I, I actually have a lot of thoughts uh, about that. I doubt Delta knew what was in that. Julius Caesar that was at the Guthrie. And I don't know that anyone from Delta saw this production in the, in the park. I think a lot of it was about drummed up, uh, outrage from, from Fox News, who like, you know, in a piece about the show, barely mentioned the show's title. You know, the headline was Trump assassinated in play in Central Park. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, called a New York play, which yeah. is, especially yeah, given the quote serious. you just read is just really yeah. hilarious. Well, and hate, you, hateful. Yeah. It, it's hateful. And, you know, I think anyone who's worked in the entertainment industry knows what New York is a euphemism for as, as well. Uh, uh you which mean is, gay, Jewish? Gay, Jewish. Jewish. I mean, both of those. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Seinfeld was dinged for being too New York. So when you say New York, New York play, you mean effete, liberal, gay, globalist. Jewish, globalist, which is another 
Jewish, right. you know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so it, there's a lot of deliberate, um, stirring of the pot, which then turns into, uh, complaints to the sponsors by the readers of those, of those websites or listeners of those talk radio shows. And then the sponsors pull their support. You know, I, I um, I, I really think that that's what it was about. There have always, there's always been because the, arts, the nonprofit arts rely on sources of funding other than consumers, there is always going to be that tension. There is always going to be um uh sponsors raising arguments because they 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 dislike a show, whether it's donors or corporations or the National Endowment for the Arts, as anyone who lived through the nineties knows with the NEA four and the 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 Mapplethorpe um uh, uh controversy. So it's it's always going to be with us, I think we're probably coming around again to a period where we're going to see more of this. And part of that is that there are certain parts of the left that are embracing this tactic, too, of 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 trying to protest works through getting the support for those works um, yanked. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's the dynamic that that the I don't think both sides do it to the same extent. I'm not trying to draw a, a false equivalence between the two, but I do think there's a way in which there's a, a self-reinforcement uh, when that goes on. Right. I mean, I would jump in and say, for example, you know, I'm committed to voicing my displeasure at NBC for sponsoring Megyn Kelly. Who oh, thank you. Platform to Alex Jones. Right. Which is such an outrage. Jesus Christ. Right. A complete outrage. And, 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 you know, so Alex Jones is the host of Infowars. He claims that, for example, the Sandy Hook massacre of 20 school children was a hoax and that those were paid actors. I mean, this is a person who doesn't deserve to be brought you know, out of the shade of the disgusting fringe into the light of the mainstream one bit and to countenance him in any way, like there's no excuse for it. I kind of think my agency as a citizen, especially in modern America, is probably sadly better expressed as a consumer than as a citizen or very often feels like that. Like I want to reserve the right, Isaac, to withhold my, you know, uh, a preference dollars from a corporation that, that underwrites something I find morally disgusting. To me, the issue here isn't that Delta dropped it. It's that it, it is that they got spooked without really thinking through the substance of the issue. Had they done that, they would have reached the exact same conclusion you drew in your article, which is that this is in no way an incitement to violence or even in any any substantive way, a critique of the Trump administration. So that that to me is where the specific foolishness lies. But there's a larger point here, and I'm—I I don't know that I've ever admiring, admiringly quoted uh, Harold Bloom, but he—but <laughs> he, 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 you know, a kind of large message he had about literature, uh, Shakespeare in particular, and literature in general, is that uh, we don't read literature; literature reads us, and Shakespeare is the greatest example of this. And this is just another example of how the man who saw everything in his remarkable polymathy, who 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 understood the entirety of the world and human motivation within the uh, context of his plays once again comprehends our reality more than we can insert him into ours and the ultimate triumph here is still shakespeare's genius right not to be corny about it but we are only playing out all of the dramas that are inherent in that text of that play and various others about you know regicide and political violence and the shallowness of the times um uh, and uh, and so in that sense, it's just a wonderful indictment of Delta, uh, but a, but an even more wonderful uh, uh, vindication of, of Shakespeare. 
If you haven't read Julius Caesar, it's actually like a really fun, compelling, lucid read. And I think easily streaming is the Marlon Brando film version of it, which is surprisingly good. Uh, uh, I think Gil Good's in it too and stuff like that. So anyway, you can actually stream it pretty easily, I think. And it's, it's really worth watching. It's actually a really, really good film. So if you can't make it to Shakespeare in the Park or spend all day waiting in line for your tickets, just go straight to the Brando streaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm, fantastic. All right. Well, the play is Julius Caesar, but check out Isaac Butler's essay on the controversy at uh, Slate.com. All right, moving on. Barry Lamb is a Vassar philosophy professor. He's created a podcast about philosophy. It turns stories into ideas, as he says, and it combines the storytelling techniques of serial or this American life with the great enlightenment tradition of bringing our hidden assumptions into the light of reason. Why don't we listen to a clip? So I believe the clip we're going to hear is from the episode Soldier Philosophers Part 1. This was a, a two-part study of essentially the role of philosophy in the military. And uh, there's a lot of interviews in these two episodes with Michael Robillard, who's a professor of philosophy at West Point. And that's who you'll hear speaking at the beginning of this clip. The currency of exploitation, the thing that is being unfairly distributed or moved between exploitee and exploiter, often has been cashed out in terms of some type of physical good or service. Robillard believes, however, that there's something else besides a physical good or physical labor that exploiters can exploit. So when we pay cops or prison guards to take on that job, we're not just paying for them to do something physical. We're also thrusting an entire set of difficult moral decisions, moral deliberative roles, and uh, instances of, of moral risk of failure onto these people in a, that, that come part and parcel with, with the actual job. Um, and I think that where this is most pronounced is in the case of soldiers in virtue of the institutional structure that is the military. So in addition to the set of ways in which soldiers are often exploited, and I think that you know, we, we can look to many classic examples of this, this the, uh, the famous Lenin line that a, uh, a bayonet is a tool with two workers at, at each end. You know, it, it's not a surprise to anyone that soldiers are often recruited from lower socioeconomic classes uh, or that they're recruited from at a very young age when they very, have very pronounced epistemic vulnerabilities. Dana, this is a this is a curious uh, a curious product here. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of it and was quite taken with it. Uh, I'm curious to know what what do you think of um, Hi Fi Nation? You know, I really liked this podcast. I mean, we have so many new things we encounter for our podcast that I don't always keep up with things even that I like. But I feel like Hi Fi Nation is going to fill a spot in my podcast listening that was kind of aching to be filled, which was for. A really meaty, thoughtful, substantial show, like for when you really want some kind of like high fiber knowledge ingestion and, and something that really gets you thinking. Um, but that's presented in a very appealing, kind of well reported and well packaged presentation. I mean, this doesn't feel like a smart dude with a microphone just kind of rambling and putting it online. I mean, this, this owes something to the tradition of this American life and more polished storytelling podcasts in that degree of, you know, finesse in the presentation. But I personally like it much better than This American Life because I felt it talked down to the listener less and had a little bit less of a 
of a sort of cutesy, a need for a cutesy frame to convince you that you needed to care about these questions. I mean, it's really, it's, it's really a podcast for someone who liked school and sort of wishes they were back in college in a way. This guy is a Vassar philosophy professor. Maybe part of why I like it is that that is my alma mater from undergraduate days. And so I have great affection for the fact that this, you know, Vassar is carrying on the tradition of, of uh, innovative thinking. But yeah, I think, I think Hi-Fi Nation is great and I would recommend it to anyone who likes our podcast or generally walking around thinking with earbuds in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isaac, it's always an open question how a person of actual intellectual substance is going to interact with the medium. What did you make of uh, Brian Lamb and Hi-Fi? Uh, I, I was quite taken with the show as well. I am also a Vassar grad, which uh, Dana and I discovered shortly before yes. we began recording today. Throwing uh, you a V-shaped hand uh, sign v- right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go Brewers. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I... I was quite, t- I wrote, that's funny because I wrote in my notes, it's like a not condescending Radio Lab. And you said it's like a not condescending this. American oh, yeah. Radio Lab is an even better example than this American life of something that, that feels very packaged and cutesy to me. Yeah. Radio Lab also has this thing where one of the two guys is the listener surrogate in, in heavy quotes and he seems to not know anything at all or have any point of view beyond naivete. And by eliminating that and talking to us like someone that he respects, like I respect you, I respect your ability to handle this stuff. You just might not know about it, and it's really interesting to talk about. So we're going to talk about it. I um really appreciated that. Sometimes uh, just a, the director in me feels the delivery is like a little too scripted and polished. But mm-hmm. uh, in, in fact, there's one segment in the Wishes of the Dead episode, I think, where he clearly is reading uh, a question that he had asked someone earlier in an interview, but rereading it so it will sound perfect in a mic. If and I may it, point out, Wishes of the Dead is the very first episode of the podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. so a little bit harsh to come down on it. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just using that as, as an example because it was the most recent one I, I listened to. I'm just saying that like, I look forward in its second season to maybe loosening up a bit, maybe not always being scripted. Um, The thing that it reminded me the most of, although this is a radically different podcast whose episodes are often very long, is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, um, which is a guy telling these stories from history and asking philosophical questions about them in a way that is sophisticated and interested in engaging the audience's intelligence, um, but not boring. All right. Well, let me dissent just a little bit. I mean, in the context of uh, of essentially loving and admiring what I heard, um, I had some reservations. I had enormous, I should say, enormous reservations going in. I, I like I, I, the the style of storytelling that you know now is almost like second nature to people who've imbibed a million hours of this American life I'm suspicious suspicious of to begin with. Um, on the other hand, I had high expectation for something that from an academic, someone who'd studied philosophy formally and rigorously i had high expectations for someone with that background showing people that philosophy isn't just kind of scholastic angels on the head of a pin debates that go absolutely nowhere between tenured people and peer-reviewed journals that no one gives a shit about like that that's not what philosophy is philosophy is a great tradition that goes back to the enlightenment in the 17th century and to uh, the ancients you know 2000 years ago or whatever 2500 years ago and it's simply a way of trying to question ourselves in order to understand better like just what we are as human beings what dilemmas we face it's 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 an attempt to ask the very hardest most intractable but enduring questions about simply being human like what's justice what's consciousness on and on whatever um so i at first had a reaction to the rhythms of the storytelling which were too familiar to me from um, npr derived podcasts and i i don't like that style of storytelling so for example in wishes of the dead he's telling the 
in in itself quite gripping story of how the Hershey founder uh, and CEO, the man who made a huge fortune uh, creating Hershey chocolates, essentially deeds all of his money to posterity in the form of an orphanage. And now that's a $12 billion fortune. And so he, he puts meat, he starts actually with the meat and not the bone. I mean, he really starts with the substantive question. And what do we owe the dead? What do the living owe the dead and the wishes of the dead? Embedding it within a historically specific and actually quite legal question of what do you do about this trust, which no one thought was going to accrue to a $12 billion behemoth. Um, you know, they could now spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on each, you know, orphan pupil at this kind of pseudo boarding school that was set up. I thought he had stacked the deck in a very shallow way in favor of saying that the dead make no claim on us at all. And through the bulk of the episode, he seems to be pursuing that thesis that, that, that we have actually quite, um, atavistic beliefs about why the dead should be honored. Um, and and then he turns it right at the end, and he becomes um, actually quite thoughtful about why it is that we do honor the wishes of the dead, and gets into the idea that we're, you know, we're meaning-based creatures, right? And, and we don't feel as though our lives would be especially meaningful if there weren't a future to humanity, you know, whether it's specifically our own children uh, or just the simple fact that human culture goes on after we, you know, die. And it's that continuity that allows us to feel as though our individual life, rooted as it is in our individual imperishable body, might be meaningful. And and it was that turn at the end that I thought this guy's this guy's landed me. I mean, that was just so beautifully done. Um yeah, uh, so anyway, I I think it's quite good and I'm eager to listen to the full run of it. I will also say that I think one of the things that it does really well is by laying out these philosophical issues in an approachable but not condescending way. Um, it's actually a quite provocative show in many ways. You know, I found myself texting people thoughts that I had had based on the show or whatever to talk about them. So, you know, like the, um, so there's an episode called Soldier Philosophers Part One, uh, in which they are talking about moral hazard and moral exploitation, which is if I harm you, I am in turn harmed by the evil that I do. And moral exploitation is when we exploit someone by getting them to engage in that kind of, um, that kind of action for us, essentially. And that, um, and I found myself quite, uh, provoked by some of the things that they were raising on that episode. And what I felt to some extent, even though that's sort of not, it's sort of addressed in the, in there's a part two in which it then gets addressed, but in which the conversation seemed to leave out in entirely the, uh, Iraqi and Afghani civilians that the harm was being done to. It was so focused on the soldiers that it seemed like they, the, those, the people who are actually being physically harmed are, uh, only exist don't exist as people. They only exist as vehicles for how we think about our own soldiers. Um, they're never subject, only object. And I just thought that was, that was really fascinating. And it's just very rare. I think it's to its credit that it, it provoked those reactions in me, even though I, I, I found it uneasy to listen to. Yeah. That one needed to be part one and part two. And it made me wish that he would do more two parters because you really felt like you got into that, that story from every possible angle. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Well, it's uh, it's called Hi-Fi Nation, P-H-I, Hi-Fi Nation, uh, hosted by Barry Lamb. Check it out. It's a very, very, very cool new podcast. All right. Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
Well, this week, as has happened in many weeks before, my endorsement comes from the site Open Culture, which really I should just endorse that site, because if you go there every day and read whatever is the new content, you're probably going to be educating yourself about something really interesting. But the uh, the Open Culture tidbit that came across my desk for this week is a list by Hayao Miyazaki, the uh, the Japanese animation director, of his favorite childhood books. It's a, it's a ranked list, as long as we're all talking this week about ranked lists, because of Tony Scott and Manola Dargis's, what was it, 25, 50? 20- 25. Yeah, I haven't looked at it yet, but the best movies of the century so far. So as a result, everybody is wildly volunteering their lists. As I've talked about on the show before, I'm not a list maker or a list liker. But if you ask me, do you want to know what childhood books Hayao Miyazaki loved as a child and recommends and that influenced his work? Of course I do. And there's also a nice little one minute long interview between Miyazaki and John Lasseter of Pixar, which is very sweet because you can see how much adoration Lasseter has for, for Miyazaki, who he kind of regards as a master. Um, so I'm going to read you a few titles from his list, which is surprisingly, or maybe not if you know his work well, un-Japanese and un-Asian. There's not a Japanese title that comes up until number 32 on this ranked list of 50. And then there's, there seem to be some other Asian children's books further down. But in general, this is literature from the Western canon, which when you think about the world in which his movies are set, makes sense. They do, they, they do often take place in a kind of fairy tale European style world. So I won't give you his number one title, but some of the ones that he mentions, um, some of which were also favorite of mine, some of which I've, I've never read, include uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett, The Secret Garden, and also Little Lord Fauntleroy, which is her much less read now, but once extremely influential and fashionable book for boys. Uh, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Winnie the Pooh. And these are classics you might expect to have on there, but also A Wizard of Earthsea, Wind of the Willows is on here, of course. But then he also starts to reach back in history, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle. Oh, The Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basily, Frank Weiler. As whoever put this list together points out on open culture, he seems drawn to uh, female protagonists in books, which again is something that comes out in a, in a lot of his movies. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is on here. And then I start seeing some titles that I've never heard of, but that of course I'm drawn to, like The Adventures of the Little Onion by Gianni Rodari, Italian children's book. Uh, the Ship That Flew by Hilda Winifred Lewis. Anyway, if you want to dig deep into the mind of Hayao Miyazaki and maybe get some ideas for children's book reading, go to Open Culture. We'll put a link on our show page. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Isaac, what do you have? Um, can I do two? Would that be okay? Uh, you can do uh, half a dozen, I think. Yeah. That's the precedent on the show. <laughs> All right. Well, because we talked about Julius Caesar, I just thought I'd, I'd put in a pitch for um, – the source text that, that Shakespeare used when writing Julius Caesar, which is Plutarch's Parallel Lives, which was Shakespeare's major source text for both Julius Caesar, uh, and Coriolanus. Uh, and it was also hugely influential on his writing and thinking about human nature and its relationship to social forces. So, uh, and you can see its influence in all, all sorts of other of his plays from character names to plot lines and everything like that. Uh, Parallel Lives is a series of short biographies of noble Greeks and Romans, which are then compared to each other and synthesized. And I've been reading it gradually over the course of this year, and it, it's uh, it's actually been like totally life changing. The lives themselves are incredible. They're thrilling. They're full of intrigue and politics and great battles and and romance and the supernatural and omens and you know all that sort of stuff that we all love from Game of Thrones. But the way Plutarch tells them is also really delightful. He has access to source material that's been lost to the sands of time. Uh, and he's also a really keen storyteller and has um this really sly sense of humor. There's one where he talks about the founder of Sparta and how they dealt with sort of problems of equality, where I was actually giggling the entire time. Like the guy, uh, 
replaces currency with large pieces of iron that are rusty and can't be used for anything else. So the people won't want to hoard money because it's inconvenient. It's, you know, stuff like there's just wild stuff like that all over the place. Um, and the lives are often about issue. A lot of issues we face today from sort of the proper role of government and the, the polity to democracy and monarchy and wealth concentration and redistribution. So I, I've really loved that. Uh, and the second one, uh, is a film that just started streaming on Netflix, which is called Little Boxes. And I should say for full disclosure that the director of it is, um, a friend of mine, Rob, Rob Mayer is his name. But before I saw it, I was like, Oh God, I'm seeing a friend's movie. I hope it's good. And it turned out to be really great. He directed it from a semi autobiographical screenplay by, uh, Annie Howell. And it's just this really keenly observed small film about one weekend in the life of this very hip, uh, interracial couple who move with their son to a very small, um, college town in, uh, somewhat rural Washington state. And it is about this, you know, as they wait for their stuff to arrive, the tensions that arise between them and between them and the town. And it really nicely, without being too heavy handed about it, synthesizes a lot of different stuff about uh, race and implicit bias and microaggressions and class and the gender dynamics in their, their marriage. Um, so it's, it's like a really great, well-observed short story. And I think anyone who's a fan of like Nicole Hall of Center's films, for example, would, would probably dig it. It is called uh, little boxes and it is streaming on Netflix. Oh, fantastic. Well, everyone associated with this show is a fan of Nicole Hall of Center. Oh, for sure. Um, Yes. Um, all right. Well, uh, I want to endorse. I, I in Australia in Sydney, uh, I sat on a panel with the Irish writer Anne Enright, uh, who I'm embarrassed to say I had uh, read nothing of and knew very little about. Um, uh, it, she was kind of a fantastical presence in a way. Um, she had a no bullshit attitude that hid the fact that every time she opened her mouth, she spoke a profound human truth. Uh, and she has a wry, like slightly cackling delivery, sardonic delivery. She was brilliant. She was utterly brilliant. So I went out in search of um, an Anne, R- Anne Wright novel to read. The famous one is The Gathering because it won the Man Booker Prize and really put her on the international literary map. I couldn't find it. There was a run on Anne and Wright in Australia. Uh, apparently, um, they shipped all their available copies of The Gathering down to Sydney for the Writers' Festival, and they sold out. But I did find one called The Forgotten Waltz from a few years ago, and I loved it. She's an incredible prose stylist and one of those people who, anywhere she turns her gaze, she shoots a shaft of light uh, into the human condition. And um, uh, I don't know that this is regarded as her best novel. I mean, I think The Gathering probably is, but um, I was... I mean, I crawled into that. I don't, I don't do this very often. I crawled into that novel and did not crawl out for two and a half days um, and absolutely loved it. Um, but uh, many people will probably tell me that there are other better Anne and Wright novels. I suspect that there might be. This in some ways was a very modest one. It tells the story of an extramarital affair, but it does it so beautifully that its lack of gimmicky originality, I didn't miss at all. Um, I, I loved it. I'm not trying to sound equivocal about it. I absolutely loved it. But I suspect that people regard The Gathering as her masterpiece. But I'm curious to hear from anyone who's an Anne Enright fan, as I now am and intend to be. I'm going to read everything she ever wrote. That's how much I like The Forgotten Waltz. Dana, have you ever read any Anne Enright? I've read her critical essays. I mean, I always like when she pops up in the, I don't know where she writes, maybe New York Review of Books or something like that. Um, and I and I love her nonfiction voice, but have never read any fiction. 
Yeah, she's a powerhouse. Isaac, you familiar with her at all? Uh, I'm not, but I am now going to be. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, seek it out. And I really uh, come to facebook.com slash culturefest if you're an Anne and Wright fan and tell me what you know. I'd love to hear it. Um, Isaac, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You kicked serious ass. Oh, thank you. This was such a blast. Thank you for having me. It was a great show. Um, Dana, thank you so much. As always. Um, you kicked the same amount of ass you kick every week, which is considerable. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of ass kicked over nine years. All right. Well, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Culture Gap Fest, part of the Panoply Network. Check out an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Bye.